0: hello and welcome to scream scene the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst my name's sarah and i'm Ben. thanks for listening to us today how are you doing ben
1: i'm doing pretty good today how about yourself Happy New Year! Oh, that's right! Happy New Year!
0: <laughs> I am doing well.
1: Yes, 2020 is behind us, and we head into the bright future of 2021, mm-hmm. the year that the movie Johnny Mnemonic is set.
0: I am also going to need to get some new glasses, because I no longer have 2020 vision.
1: <laughs> fair. Fair. Uh. That we, was your one.
0: That was my one. <laughs> no more for this episode. What are we watching today?
1: Today, Sarah, we're watching The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues from
0: 1955. So is this like an uh, like underwater ghost movie?
1: It's an underwater monster movie.
0: But is the monster a ghost?
1: Not so far as I know. Okay. Like, I feel like a better title would be The Monster from the Shallow Lake. (laughs) Uh, Just given what we're actually going to see on screen here. Okay. Um, So, you know, sidebar, 10,000 Leagues.
0: Yeah, tell me about it.
1: Okay, so like...
0: I've heard this many a time, but for the listener who has not.
1: Yeah, so this title is nonsense, and I mean, that's fine, because the titles... such,
0: like... Classics as Beast with a Million Eyes.
1: Yes. The titles of these movies are often...
0: Hyperbolic?
1: Yes. Then they can also be lies. (laughs) Uh, Like the Beast... Like, well, the Beast with a Million Eyes was metaphorically descriptive, but not literally (laughs) accurate. Yes. Um, This is true. But, you know, we've had titles in the past, like Valley of the Zombies, a movie that contained neither valley nor zombies.
0: But he had come from, he had heard of this legend from the Valley of the Zombies. So it was at least, like, in the text.
1: That's fair. I guess that's sort of like having a Star Trek movie where they stay on Earth the whole two hours and just talk about space adventures we've had.
0: There are episodes like that, then.
1: Sure, but it's not the whole Dan franchise. (laughs) Um... So leagues. Right. So a league is an archaic nautical measurement of distance, not of depth. I mean, you can use a league to measure depth, but you don't. You use like fathoms or, you know, presumably now in 2020, some like...
0: eight, Not 2020.
1: Presumably now in 2021, some, you know, international scientific unit of measurement that makes sense. Regardless, people tend to make the mistake that a league is a measurement of depth because of Jules Verne and the title of his famous book, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which is not meant to say that Captain Nemo's submarine is 20,000 leagues down under the sea. It is meant to say that Captain Nemo's submarine has traveled 20,000 leagues while being Under the Sea, because it is a submarine. (laughs) We come to this movie. Now, the title for this movie was dreamed up by American Releasing Corporation co-founder James Nicholson, who, of the two co-founders, was the one with the background in marketing. And he came up with this title, and then they made a movie around it. The title probably is inspired by recent successful movies like The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms or the recent Disney success of the live-action 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But it continues on this misunderstanding because this isn't a phantom from 10,000 Leagues away. Hasn't traveled any distance to get here. I'm pretty sure the title is meant to be implying depth. That said, whether it's distance or depth, both are ridiculous. (laughs) 10,000 Leagues is equal to 55,560 kilometers. The diameter of the Earth, like if I were to drill from one end of the Earth, you know, down through the Earth's core to the other side, sure. is 12,742 kilometers. So if you're 10,000 leagues deep, you are down into space on the other side of the planet. <laughs> now, the circumference of the Earth, you know, if I was to just follow the equator all the way around that is 40,075 kilometers so you know 20,000 leagues under the sea implies like you've circled the globe like a couple times and some change or you know your path wasn't a straight line so whether it's 10,000 leagues deep or 10,000 leagues away it's nonsense either way
0: so our phantom here isn't showing up with luggage no okay
1: So last episode, we were talking about Day the World Ended, directed by Roger Corman. Yes. Uh, This movie is the second feature of the double feature that Day the World Ended was the lead feature of. Um, So as we talked about in last week's episode, American Releasing Corporation had figured out that they could make more money if they controlled both halves of a double feature. And the way to ensure they always controlled both halves of the double feature was to make their films to be in a double feature. you know. So rather than having a library of films and you're trying to pair two together, uh, you just always make every movie at the same time as you're making another movie that you know you're going to sell at the same time as it, and people can't get one without the other. Because of the money being spent on Day the World Ended, $96,000, And the need to now make this movie at the same time when ARC had never funded two movies at once before. um, And in fact, didn't really have the crew to do that because (laughs) Roger Corman had made all their movies up to now and he was making Day the World Ended. ARC had to sort of turn to someone to make a second feature film unit out of nowhere on less money than What Day the World Ended was getting, or at least less money from ARC. So what happened was Samuel Arkoff and James Nicholson made a deal with the brothers Dan and Jack Milner, who formed Milner Brothers Productions to make this movie on a budget of $75,000, with the costs split 60-40 with ARC. So ARC is putting up 60% of that $75,000 and the Milners had to raise the other 40. Dan Milner was the elder of the two brothers. He was born in 1901 in Russia and his brother Jack was born in 1910 in New Jersey. Dan Milner got his start in film as an editor in 1934 um, and that was mostly what he had done up to this point. He was a steady B-movie editor. He has directed one movie before this, The Fighting Coward, a 1935 crime film produced by B-movie producer Sam Katzman.
0: So 20 years ago. Right.
1: So you can see why he's wanting to take a deal to get back in the saddle, I guess. Of his many B-movies that he was an editor for, or serials, or, you know, stuff in that vein, we have seen one of them. Oh, It's Son of Ingagi from 1940. Movie number 175 out of 175 on our list.
0: The worst horror movie ever made up to this point.
1: Correct. His younger brother, Jack Milner, was an editor as well. um, And he met Roger Corman as the sound editor of Monster on the Ocean Floor. And from there served corman as an associate producer on the fast and the furious so that's the pre-existing link here that gets the milner brothers in with arkoff and nicholson they were wanting to you know go into business on their own make their own movies and so here we are the screenplay here is by lou russoff who also wrote day the world ended so there's some creative consistency between the two halves of this double bill that's kind of cool Another person who worked on both films is composer Ronald Stein, who did the music for both. There are a couple notable names in the cast. Um, Our lead actor is Kent Taylor, who was born in 1907, and by this point was sort of a past his prime matinee idol. Um, His biggest roles had been in movies in the 1930s, Um, although he, he acted in the 1940s as well, but in B movies. He was sort of like... A supporting lead in the 1930s, mostly for how handsome he was. And then he was a lead actor in the 1940s, but in B movies rather than A movies. He was, along with Clark Gable, one of the inspirations for the name Clark Kent. And um, some of the movies he had been in that were A pictures in the 30s include Merrily We Go to Hell with Frederick March. Oh. Death Takes a Holiday. And the Mae West film, I'm No Angel, uh, where he's the wealthy gentleman that Mae West goes after before she meets Cary Grant. Cool. So by 1955, he was 48 years old. And this film sort of marked the transition in his career from lead actor in B-movies to acting in low-budget, drive through grindhouse, indie genre movies like this one
0: at least still a lead sure so
1: something he passed away in 1987 our lead actress is also someone semi-well-known her name is kathy downs she was born in 1926 in new york and she was a vogue cover model who was discovered by 20th century fox talent scouts at age 18 and signed to a contract with the studio at age twenty, she played Clementine Carter in John Ford's classic western *My Darling Clementine*, and she was being groomed to be a major star. Then, in nineteen forty-seven, Fox dropped her for reasons unknown. I mean, I'm sure somebody knows, but Maybe nobody not anymore. Nobody who's talking. Uh, and she was never hired by a major studio again. So wow! So whatever it was was something that not only poisoned her with Fox, but then poisoned her with everyone else. And we really have no way of knowing if that was something on her part, if that was something on, you know, a producer or a director's part who didn't like her for whatever reason and decided to sink her career. We really have no idea. From that point on, she found work appearing in Poverty Row B pictures and drive through fair like this movie. She's sort of got a bit of a cult following Uh, from people as, you know, this, like, big name who ended up being in these kind of smaller pictures. In 1949, she married fellow B-movie actor Joe Kirkwood, but by 1955, they were divorced. She quit acting at age 40 and was unemployed for the rest of her life. Uh, Kirkwood had lost touch with her, but by 1976, he had heard of the hard times she had fallen on, so he put a trust fund together for her so that she would have access to some money, um, only to discover that she had already died of cancer.
0: Oh, fuck.
1: Our monster suit this time around was not made by Paul Blaisdell. I don't know who made it, which is always a good sign, (laughs) Um, but I do know... That the suit was filled by a highly experienced deep sea diver named Norma Hansen. One of the very few women to ever be a suit actor in a monster movie. That's cool. Yeah, I think primarily she was hired for being a deep sea diver. Because the monster is like, best as I could tell, a 100% underwater monster.
0: Yeah, and as we talked about in the Creature from the Black Lagoon episodes... Those suits are heavy, and you have to be really experienced with holding your breath and moving around in water to successfully depict an underwater creature.
1: We'll see how successful it is. Because, I mean, Creature from the Black Lagoon was very, very good. Phantom from 10,000 Leagues was released with Day the World Ended in December of 1955, expanding across the United States throughout the next year, and eventually grossing $1 million by the end of
0: 1956.
1: Wow. Yeah, It had made $400,000 by the end of February. This is, of course, both movies together.
0: Yeah, but still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it cost 75000 to make. Yeah.
1: The film got almost unanimously bad reviews <laughs> uh, from everybody. And it still does. There oh, has not no. been like a critical reappraisal here where this is a secret hidden gem that said so it's available on dvd from mgm's midnight movie collection uh paired with beast with a million eyes and then no shit it's on a solo blu-ray release from kino kino (laughs) uh you can also stream it on tubi but the better copy is actually on YouTube, and you can find it in our YouTube playlist.
0: You can find our YouTube playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. I'm really curious to see what Kino saw in this. (laughs) Enough to uh, get it and put it out on a disc. Free? For free.
1: It's it's a public... Well, no, the, the Blu-ray's not free. They got it for free because it's a public domain movie.
0: Yeah, but they still had to be like, oh, well, let's get this.
1: Sure, let's m- spend the money to print the discs.
0: Yeah. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues from 1955, directed by Dan Milner.
1: See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues, directed by Dan Milner. It, um...
0: There was a phantom. They kept calling it the phantom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. just a sea serpent. Well... A mutated sea serpent. For
1: sure. This was a movie.
0: It sure was. It did
1: exist and fill out the bottom half of a double bill.
0: Yes. We do not have high opinions of this movie. I... I... I think we had a fun time watching it. Uh, I guess.
1: Why don't you tell us the story, Sarah?
0: I know I have a tendency to just kind of throw up my hands and give up sometimes on these movies. Mm -hmm. And I tried really hard not to do that this time. Mm. Still kind of did it, though. Mm. But this wasn't, like, the worst. No, no. Well, let me recap it for our audience who does not want to spend... An hour and 20 minutes watching this movie.
1: Yeah. Don't... Well, depending on what your threshold for this kind of thing is, I suppose. Yeah, maybe
0: you'll have fun laughing at it. Yeah. So it opens with a man going fishing with a net. Which, by the way, net fishing always freaked me out as a child. Why? Because I was like, what if someone's, like, diving under there? They're going to get caught in the vope and the net, and they're going to drown. But the dude will just think it's a big fish, but it'll be a tragedy. This is child, Sarah. Okay. I did say as a child. Okay. Um, Anyway, so he's net fishing. And we cut to some light coming out of the ocean floor. And next to it, a man-sized sea serpent. It attacks the man, capsizing the boat, and he washes up onto shore. The monster sort of looks like if you can picture like You know um, the um like Chinese dragon sure. puppet things? Yeah, yeah. That's what the head kind of looks like. Yeah,
1: and then like it's just sort of the body's like a tube man. Yeah. And then it's got arms. Yeah.
0: Tube woman.
1: Well, sure. Um <laughs> Yeah, it the head either looks like a an, a Chinese dragon or it also looks like if you Asked a monk in a monastery in the Middle Ages to, like...
0: Draw a lion.
1: Right, yeah. <laughs> like, draw a, a gecko or something.
0: Obviously, it's in black and white, but I have a feeling that, like, the way it's designed, it looks like it would just be the head from one of the puppets for a Chinese dragon. Like, the kind of mm. um, embroidery and, like, uh, like feathers that they have on the puppets. Uh-huh. That's what it looked like to me. Mm, I don't... Maybe with, like, more spikes rather than a flathead. It
1: had a frill. Yeah. Yeah, um, I don't...
0: I don't know. Maybe. Regardless. We don't know who made it, so... Yeah. Anyways. This man's body is found by, first, a Professor King.
1: Although we don't know that yet. He's just a mysterious someone at this point.
0: And then, moments later, a Dr. Stevens... Um, now he notices that the body and the boat have radiation burns. And he mentions this when a third person comes by, William Grant, who is from the U.S. Department of Defense. Now Grant is like, who are you and what are you doing here at late at night wandering the beach looking at dead men? And Dr. Stevens replies, I am Mr. Baxter. So this is an alias he's giving to many people in the film. As they are talking, uh, we see a young man up on the cliff with a fucking spear gun. And Grant calls him down. His name is George. He is a student at the local oceanography college, as well as Professor King's assistant.
1: The wild thing here is that none of these people drive up to this place Yeah, they,
0: they seem to walk
1: everywhere yeah like the first guy who finds the body seems to just be out for a midnight stroll on the beach sees there's a dead body and then just walks away stevens it seems like he saw that person but he doesn't do anything about it either and then just walks up to the dead body he's also like in a full suit by the way, here on the beach. He seems to have come from nowhere. And then he's by the body. And then Grant, also in a full suit, also seems to have come from nowhere and just walks up to the body. Like, this federal investigator from the Department of Defense isn't here with any kind of team or a car or anything. And then George just walks up out of nowhere. Like, everybody's just walking on the beach at midnight, I guess
0: yeah, it's romantic. (laughs) So Stevens, aka Mr. Baxter, leaves the scene of the crime and continues walking to Professor King's residence, which is also on the beach. Um, Now, he explained to Grant, and will explain many more times, that he is here on vacation. He's also an oceanographer, and is interested in Professor King's work. So he tried to meet him earlier today. They said, come to his house, blah, blah, blah. That's why he's here. Um, Now, Professor King is avoiding everyone, so much so that he escapes through his bedroom window to avoid speaking to Mr. Baxter. The next day, (laughs) Professor King is at work. We meet his secretary, Ethel, who he describes as intelligent, but a bitter terrible woman who hates mankind.
1: Which there's no evidence of in her behavior at all.
0: So that's fun and wonderful. Anyways, now Ethel, along with everyone else, is very, like, curious and also concerned about what Professor King's work is because he shuts himself into his lab, locks the door, whatever, and is very secretive about it. Ethel has been trying to get some, like, clues about it and, like, sees some papers lying around and, Tries to like, you know, figures things out. This seems to be partly why Professor King isn't a big fan of her, because because he, he describes her as like sneaking around and such. Yeah. But I mean, my guy, she's your secretary.
1: Also, like, a, if
0: you don't like what she's doing, fire her. Mm. And B, she's your secretary. She should know what you're doing because she's literally there. To assist your work. Yeah, I'm not sure what she actually
1: does if she's not allowed to, like, look at any of his papers. Also, like, the village has had, you know, stories going around lately about the Phantom killing people in the ocean.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, This fisherman who died at the opening is, like, the third person to die.
1: Yeah. So, you know, Ethel's got reasons to be concerned.
0: Yeah. So Professor King goes into his lab, and then George comes in. Like I said, he is the assistant. And he's like, Ethel, you gotta get me into that lab. I gotta find out these secrets. And Ethel's like, I can't do that. George is like, I can make it worth your while with money. And she's like, why would I take... Why would you have money?
1: And Why wouldn't I just tell the professor that you're snooping
0: around? Exactly. And he takes a spear gun off the wall and says... Well, it sure would be a shame if you told anyone what I'm doing.
1: (laughs) Which, like, imagine you're a middle-aged secretary at a university, and your boss won't tell you what he's up to, and kind of is verbally abusive to you. And then, like, his fucking, like, RA, who's not allowed into the lab, so I don't know what the fuck George does. Yeah. And again, the professor complains about George snooping around. It's like, then just dismiss him. But anyways... You know, this student comes into the room, pulls a weapon off the wall and points it at you and threatens you. Like, what What would you do naturally in that situation, Sarah?
0: I would call campus security.
1: Sure. Uh, Ethel doesn't do that or call the police or do anything.
0: Yeah. Now, we do get to see some of Professor King's work. Uh, he found a turtle on the beach. And this is a freshwater turtle that you would see in, like fresh water like a swamp not next to the ocean
1: sure but you know it's (laughs) easy to get this kind of turtle from like a pet shop and get it onto your movie
0: set so professor king takes this turtle puts it into some kind of device puts (sighs) on a hazmat suit to protect himself from radiation and then subjects this poor turtle to radiation
1: yeah like he's trying to make a ninja turtle
0: Or something. Meanwhile, we cut to Mr. Baxter, Dr. Stevens. Mm. By this time, Ted. Yes, by this time, we've learned his first name, and so I will be calling him Ted from now on for ease of communication. Sure. He is out swimming. He's investigating what caused this fisherman to die. Um, He's out there with a Geiger counter. He sees the light coming from the ocean floor and the sea serpent, and he's like, fuck, and gets the fuck out of there. He goes to see Professor King about what he saw. Professor King kind of scoffs at it, and then says, I know you're not Mr. Baxter, you are Dr. Stevens, because I've read your work. Um, Dr. Stevens, as I said, is an oceanographer, and his work has mainly revolved around sea life, heavy water, radioactive isotopes, and mutations. Yeah. Not really much detail other than that.
1: Yeah, he he learned how to make an atomic reaction underwater. He, then he subjected, like, an animal to it. And then it mutanted. Um, <laughs> he made a mutant. And then he was like, oh shit, oops, and killed it. And yeah. then was like, well, never do that again. But he still published his research. Yes.
0: Ted believes... And he tells this to Professor King, that there's an uranium ore deposit under the water that has somehow been activated. And so that's what's causing the glowing light. And that contact with this light is what caused the radioactive burns on the fisherman, his boat, etc.
1: This light coming up out of the ocean is consistently referred to as a death ray.
0: Yes, that is... (laughs) Good choice of words. Mm. And it seems like this sea serpent is protecting it, not in any kind of, like, Scooby-Doo sort of thing of, like, keeping people away from it, but it, like, feeds on it. Yeah. It's just an animal who has mutanted and <laughs> feeds on the death, right? Yes. <laughs> Professor King, of course, laughs this off because he wants his stuff to be secret. Meanwhile, George, the assistant... Uh, meets up with the Black Widow, I mean, Wanda, <laughs> um, who is a, basically a Soviet spy.
1: Yeah, she's like a sexy, blonde Soviet spy who looks and acts like she's fucking Barbara Stanwyck in a film noir movie.
0: They want King's research, and George said that he could get it for them, so he's like basically a traitor to the country. Correct. Not even... Yeah, he is. <laughs> but because he hasn't given them what they want and they've already paid him, he is in between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, Wanda's like, you might not be much use to us if you can't get us this shit. Yeah. Ted, when talking to Professor King about this work and King kind of laughing it off, uh, he accidentally lets slip that someone is trying to sell this research to an unknown other, now king suspects Ethel cuz he's a misogynist. Mhm. And the next day at work, he picks up the same fucking spear gun and says to Ethel like sure would be a shame if anyone found out about my shit.
1: Yeah. Sure would be a shame if one of the people in this room was a traitor to their country.
0: Yes. What do you think what what do you think the penalty for that should be, Ethel? Death? Let me oh. just see how how pointy, how sharp the point is here.
1: Yeah, so she's been threatened with death from this same spear gun twice in two days. I
0: really feel sorry for Ethel. Yeah. I gotta say. Yeah. So she goes to Grant. Um, I don't know if it's clear that she knows the full extent of what Grant is investigating, but she knows that he is an investigator of some kind. And she's like everyone is threatening me, I don't know what to do, and Grant is like, okay, but what we can do is get into that lab to find something out, and then we can figure out a way to protect you. So they figure out a way to get her into the lab, which she does, and King finds out because she accidentally leaves her keys in there. Meanwhile, Soviet spy Wanda overheard Ethel telling Grant all of this, and she tells George, hey, Ethel went to the police, and your name was mentioned. Mm-hmm. Figure that out. <laughs> so George kills Ethel with the spear gun.
1: You see, if you threaten a character twice with a spear gun in the course of, like, the first two acts of your movie, she has to be shot by the spear gun in the third act of your movie. That's just, that's just writing 101. <laughs> George's spear gun? Right. Meanwhile, Crime 101 is don't kill people with extremely...
0: Easy to trace weapons. Yes. Like the spear gun, spear, literally says...
1: Like property of the Oceanography College
0: on it. Yeah, and it just has George's fingerprints on it. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's, it's... George is clearly studying oceanography, not criminology.
1: Yeah, very true, very true. So... Get your Soviet spy buddy to give you a gun. Jesus.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Before Ethel dies. Earlier that day. Okay. I've gotten ahead of myself. Yes. Because two more people die and wash up on shore. Ted sees this and he's investigating the boat and everything and confirms, like, yeah, this is radioactive, whatever. And George is hiding in the bushes And goes to shoot him with the spear gun and misses. Yeah. So he takes off, Grant appears and he's like, gee, someone just tried to kill you. Also why are you still here investigating these deaths? That's crazy. That happens the day of Ethel being murdered that night. Mm Ted goes with Grant to the morgue with the two divers' bodies, and this is when we learn that Ted has actually been working for Washington all along. And he's like, yeah, Grant, I wanted to see how long it would take for you to catch on. <laughs> so they're both sent from Washington. Uh, Grant working on like the law side perspective of the case, and Ted looking at the scientific side of the case. I don't know why they can just work together. Oh my God. So, so they team up, right? Yeah. For the rest
1: of the movie. And, and Grant's first name is William. So what Dr. Stevens calls him as a friend for the rest of the movie is Bill.
0: Yeah. It's Bill and Ted. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. But this isn't an excellent adventure.
1: No, this is a ho-hum adventure.
0: So, Bill and Ted (laughs) go diving the next morning to just confirm what Ted's theory is. And they do. Uh, They see the serpent, whatever. Um, They also are almost killed because George put poison in their air tanks, whatever. It's, It's not even a whole thing. So, after diving, they're like, okay, so George also just tried to kill us now. Bill goes after George, and Ted is going to Professor King. Professor King, being told all of this by Ted, is like, but this is my life's work. Like, I can't just throw all of it out. Like, this is a real humdinger. And Ted's like, five people have died.
1: And And you've just got a radioactive death beam just shooting up into the sky from the ocean floor that's being guarded by, like,
0: a, a sea monster. Like, this isn't... Like how did you pass ethics? Like, (laughs) what did you? What were you trying to accomplish? What what is your plan here? Like, no, this has to come to an end. And King's like, man, give me an hour to think about this. Like, I see what you're saying, but give me an hour. In that hour, a big boat. I think
1: like a ship, like a cargo ship, ship. or like a navy.
0: Yeah, it's either like a navy freighter. Or I don't think it's a cargo ship because it didn't look quite right. It looks okay, like a Okay, then it's Navy like a Navy
1: ship. ship. It's like a small, you know, <laughs> Navy patrol boat or something.
0: It's It's going by. And the minute it came on screen, I was like, blow up, blow up, blow up. Audience, it blows up. Because yes. of the radioactive death ray coming from the ocean yeah, floor. Yeah, I'm
1: surprised this hasn't happened already, to be honest. Yes.
0: To be fair, this freighter should not be in such shallow waters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> it should like really work this, like that. This, but...
1: Yeah, it's not very deep. Um, so,
0: this causes King to go, fuck, what have I done? He heads to his lab and just trashes the place. the poor janitor, who we've only seen in one other scene, is like, oh, I can clean up now. And King is like, yeah, there's nothing else for me here. Mm. And the janitor, like, it's like someone watches you, like, purposely smash a glass to the floor. And then you go, you clean it up. Right. Like, what an (laughs) asshole.
1: yeah. Also, in smashing up his whole lab, King, like, kills the creature that he mutated that turtle into
0: it just looks like a bigger turtle it
1: well without a shell right like it looked like if you took a turtle without a shell and then made it like the size of a dog or something but <laughs> fucking the janitor looks at it and he goes is this one of god's creatures dr yes. king which is a wild thing to say to anyone about anything and king's like no andy that's one of man's mistakes <laughs>
0: So then King leaves. Seeing the explosion as well, Ted and, um, (laughs) I haven't even mentioned King's daughter, Lois. She and Ted have been falling in love this whole movie. Yeah, she's
1: been here the entire time. She lives with her father because she's the girl and Ted's the boy. As he's been investigating King, the two of them have been falling in love. You can fill in all of the blanks. She's completely plot- non-essential, but here because, you know, this is a movie.
0: So they are like, fuck, we need to go find King. They head to the lab. He's not there. And Andy's like, yeah, he left this mess for me to clean up. So then they rush to the beach. The only other place in this movie where he could possibly be. Right. There is only
1: the beach, the college, and King's house.
0: Yeah. We see Professor King loading up a boat pushing off into the ocean, rowing out to where the Death Ray is and the Sea Serpent, and he rigs up some dynamite and goes diving. So he swims down and blows himself up, along with the Sea Serpent and the uranium ore. So now the Death Ray is finished and, you know, deactivated or whatever the fuck. Sea Serpent is killed, and he's killed as well. And this explosion goes off in the water just as Ted... And Lois arrive, um, and she's like, oh god, my dad! How could he do this? Ted's like, he had to take his knowledge with him.
1: There are things that man is not meant to know.
0: Uh, Meanwhile, during this whole sequence, George, who presumably got into the lab at this point, is running over to where he's supposed to meet Wanda, also on the beach. And he turns a corner by an umbrella and gets socked in the face. By Bill. hmm Oh, yeah, there's, like, a regular cop involved now. Anyways, um, so they cuff him. And they've presumably cuffed Wanda yeah. at this point, too. And then Bill goes to see Ted and Lois as the explosion happens so they can all be in, you know, the final scene together. Right. Um, that, that's the end.
1: <sighs> this movie has all of the typical problems of this kind of movie. So it's got, you know... A, ha- a world that consists of a handful of locations, two handfuls worth of people, a lot of filler or scenes that are clearly designed to just sort of keep things, you know, keep the balls in the air until the end of the movie keep unnecessarily. Keep the camera rolling? Yeah. Um, all of those typical kind of problems. I think it's, you know, it's got a bad monster who just hangs out and kind of does nothing, Every plot development is teased beforehand over and over so that there's just no suspense when things happen. It's got over the hill or nobody actors. All of those typical kinds of problems. I think it's got two big problems that are script problems that reign above those, but I I can talk about those a bit later later what uh what were your first impressions
0: um i was just so glad that this movie was over um the filmmaking is kind of whatever the music is kind of whatever especially I there was when, some
1: neat music time to time
0: uh eh. and then when they're in the water it's just very like like it's as if the music is trying to do the heavy lifting for suspense but mm-hmm. it really just felt like like a metronome going back and forth, just like, kill me now, like, I'm so bored.
1: Every time they go into the water, there's this, like, bass guitar theme, which I, I kind of liked at first. Um, it helped, you know, sell the, like, we're in the depths, blah, blah, blah. But, like, it does get a bit monotonous. And then, yeah, talk about heavy lifting. This is definitely one of those movies where, like, every time the monster's on screen, the music, you know, does this big swell of music, even if the monster's not doing...
0: Anything.
1: Anything which the monster rarely does
0: no when it does attack, it swims up and just hugs the people,
1: yeah, and then they just die, like and like
0: of... the like the mouth moves, but it's not like biting them no. <laughs>
1: Like none of these people are washing up to shore with like gouges or claw marks or blood no, or biting. They were just
0: like told to lie down in the sand,
1: right? And and you know we're we're being told that cause of death is radiation burns from the light ray. So the monsters just like I guess holding them in the light till they die or something. The the other thing is that none of the bodies that wash ashore, none of the one boat over and over again that washes ashore have any burns on them
0: well if they did that to the boat they would have to they wouldn't get their deposit back for the rental
1: right so like you just have scenes of like people looking at normal looking bodies and boats going like gosh the amount of radiation burns on these people is incredible that's acting (laughs) well that's why that's why they need a scientist like dr stevens here because clearly to the layman they look fine it
0: looks fine (laughs) yeah it does, okay, so I have two points to make, mm-hmm. but they are positive points.
1: Okay, do we want to stick on the negative train for now, then?
0: Yeah, I think so. Let's stay uh, negative Nellies. Right. And we'll come back to being positive Polly's.
1: Sure. So, the script is a mess. Yes. Um, it's super lazy. And
0: convoluted.
1: Unnecessarily so. Like a lot of B-movie scripts tend to be, as if you're thinking, it's, it's like quantity over quality. Right? Like, the more characters and subplots we can have. And the thing is, the two biggest problems with the script, one is a problem that you see in a lot of B-movies, but it's very, like, extremely noticeable here, partially because your suspension of disbelief gets broken a lot in this movie because of the fact that there's no extras. Because there's only, like, five people in the whole world. You know, you it's weird when Inspector for... The Department of Defense, William Grant, shows up out of nowhere, no car, no team, nothing. This this dead person on the beach with this overturned boat, like, there's no police line around it. There's no explanation of how Grant saw it or knew it was here or whether he did when he showed up. Um, there's no explanation for, you know, Stevens. It, everyone's existing in this weird vacuum. And it starts to make you notice that this is a movie whose plot would be over in minutes if anyone in the story acted like a person in normal real life. Yes. Um, You know, this is one of those movies where you have characters saying things like, let's just wait to see how this plays out. Or, you know, what do you think we should do, Doc? Oh, I can't tell you yet. I'm still waiting to have more data or whatever. Everyone's just waiting for no reason. Because if we, if we take this set of characters and these events and we apply logic to them, for one thing, the idea that Stevens and Grant are both sent, but Stevens, like, there's no reason for Stevens to have the fake name. It doesn't accomplish anything. King finds out almost immediately because he's like, oh, you're also a famous scientist. You know, it's like... Whose
0: face is literally on the cover
1: Of his textbook. It's like Bill Gates walking up to Steve Jobs and being like, Hello, my name is Robert Smith. And like, expecting that to work.
0: Well, I mean, Steve Jobs is dead. You
1: know what I mean. (laughs) And then like, the thing with Grant, where it was like, Yeah, I just wanted to see how long it would take you to figure out. Like, you're so you're hampering your own investigation for a laugh? Like, no. They would have been sent out together. It should be like a buddy cop movie basically where it's like you throw the scientist and the gumshoe together and uh so they should show up together then you know you see a weird guy hanging around the body chase after
0: him yeah don't just let him walk off and go to his house that is just down the beach. And then and then the
1: first time that George shows up when Stevens and Grant are standing by this dead body You know, Grant's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm George. I'm a student at the university. And Grant's like, okay, well, get the hell out of here and forget you were ever here.
0: Yeah, and and forget that, like, I was here. And it's like, he has a spear gun on land with no diving gear.
1: Yeah, and like, what happens is, these two show up. They go meet the sheriff. They're like, sheriff, you know those dead bodies you got around here? And he's like, yeah. And they're like, we have a theory that there's something bigger going on. We need your cooperation. Cool. We suspect it has something to do with the college. Oh, well, the college is on vacation right now, but Dr. King and his secretary and his assistant are still there. Great. Bring them in for questioning. Then you interview those people. You learn which ones are shifty or not, right? Like George is going to come in and be like, Yeah, I ain't doing nothing. I just walk around with my spear gun for fun. Whatever. You can't hold me on anything. And, like, Ethel comes in and goes, Yeah, my boss is super fucking suspicious, and so the fuck is George. And you go, Okay, okay. And then, you know, Dr. King comes in and says, I can't tell you anything about my work for reasons. You know, and now you know who's Shifty. This would be a completely different movie. Okay. It is blindingly clearly obvious that King is doing Steven's experiments on a larger scale from the get-go. Like, Steven comes in and he talks to King really early on, and he's like, yeah, so, you know, I saw this death ray and this mutant, and I know for a fact you can make mutants with death rays, because I've done it on a small scale, but someone's done it here on a large scale. And King's like, that's
0: ridiculous. That's bonkers. That's
1: silly. Huh. And it's like, okay, so, Stevens, you know for a fact that this is here. Who in this universe of seven people... Has the know-how to do this. And they're like, well, it's either Professor King or George. Like, that's the thing that's going back and forth this whole movie. It's why they don't act on anything this whole movie is because they don't know who it is. I mean, for one thing, arrest both of them and fucking get a search warrant for the lab. You're the federal government. But also, also, George doesn't have access to the lab. So how the fuck is he making death rays and mutants? No, it's it's King. It's obviously King. You arrest him, you get a warrant, you search the lab. Oh, look, here's the mutated turtle in the death ray. Done. Hey, did a ship full of Navy officers blow up? No. Did, like, three more people die? No. But instead, everyone in this movie just sits on their ass watching people die, going, Huh. Gosh. Yeah, that King, he sure, sure needs to be stopped. Like... It's, nobody acts like a human being because if they did, the movie would be over.
0: Yeah. I didn't mention this, but it comes out that Ethel's backstory is that her one and only son was one of King's past assistants who would go out and capture specimens in the water. hmm And... Presumably died on right. one of those excursions. Right. And so, so that's why she is so frustrated with King. And I'm like, girl, you don't need to stay working for him. Also you could like, transfer to like another professor. You could move, you could why you hasn't, could flip burgers rather than working with the person who you think murdered your son. Why hasn't the ethics
1: board looked at this guy? Hell, right? all these people have been dying already, right? Like like Stephen and Grant show up and these people are already dead, right? Obviously, they've shown up because the federal government are like, oh, people are washing ashore dead from radiation burns, and there's like a noted weirdo scientist in the area. <laughs> Let's send in some guys to investigate. But meanwhile, if you're just the town sheriff, like, you know, the whole deal is supposed to be that, like, oh, the papers are really playing up this phantom angle and these phantom stories that have been going around. Because there's no one in this movie other than, like, the five main characters, we never see anyone talking about this phantom. We don't see those newspapers. There's no evidence of the town, right? We never see the town. We just have the sheriff. But you're the sheriff. People are washing ashore dead. And they're covered in burns. They're not drowned. I mean they probably are, but they're covered in burns. That's not people don't wash up from water covered in burns often. So like immediately you know something's afoot if if Ethel's son, the professor's assistant washed up covered in burns. You'd be like, that's weird. Hey, professor, what are you working on? And then he'd be like, I can't tell you. And you'd be like, well, that's suspicious as fuck. You're arrested. And the movie's over before Stephen and Grant even
0: get there. <laughs> like,
1: it's, it's fucking buck wild. Uh, so that's, that's one of my big problems. Okay. Is that the story only works because these people are like, well, let's just let there be a movie for a while longer.
0: What's the second? The
1: biggest problem with this movie... Is that you know? You look at our character archetypes here, right? We've got Ted, hero scientist. Uh, Bill, hero hero cop. cop. Yeah, Wanda's the Black Widow. George is the spiteful assistant who who wants to to you know. He's Keegan Michael Key in Jingle Jangle.
0: Jeez Louise!
1: Um, we've got the professor's daughter, you know, who's the romantic interest. We've got the secretary. We've got the sheriff. That's that's everybody except for Professor King.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I think you forgot the main dude. Right.
1: So he's the main dude. Everyone else is an archetype. Like, Ted doesn't have a character arc. Bill doesn't have a character arc. You know, Lois doesn't fucking have a character arc. Professor King is our main character who actually has character drama happening. Because the movie's trying to play it like he's conflicted about what's happening. That he's been doing these experiments and things have just gotten out of hand and he doesn't know how to rein them in and he feels bad about what's happened and finally the guilt consumes him and he kills himself to stop his own creation except that he's only like that half the time this is a movie that wants the mad scientist to be dr Sarazawa and dr doom Like at the same time, like he's, he's supposed to be like a, a Bela Lugosi mad scientist and the like noble, you know, sacrificing scientist in one character. And it never feels conflicted. He feels like there should have been a Jekyll Hyde or I have an evil twin reveal at one point (laughs) because he'll walk into one room and talk to someone and be like, oh, the horrible things that are happening. I just wish that someone could do something about it. No, I can't tell you about it now. I'm so tired. Just leave me be. And then he'll walk into another room and be like, "If you ask me a question, I'll make sure they never find your body." And you're like, "What?"
0: I, it felt like the writer read Frankenstein mm-hmm. and and used that as like a blueprint. And I sure. think like you can make the case of a pretty solid like one to one of like. a scientist who is conflicted and is moody about it, um, whether it's, like, uh, book Frankenstein or movie Frankenstein. Yeah, and we've
1: had that archetype in enough movies as well that, you know, the writer could have just read a comic book at one point.
0: Exactly. So the mad scientist who is maybe good Mm. kind of feeling, especially with, like, that ending of, like, blowing himself up. Yeah. Except it's just poorly pulled off here. I don't know if it. it's probably a bit of both the writing and the acting. It's of just, it just not being good.
1: It's just that his character is the central character in the movie that we should be having some investment in. And he's so inconsistent that I can't tell who he's supposed to be. He's. It's so wild to have a character where it's like someone walks up to them and they're like yeah a ton of people have died. And they're like yeah that that's awful. I feel so Science guilty about it. Science is such a
0: mistress that takes over and Asks for every little piece of your life.
1: Yeah. But also, like, skulks around spying on people and threatening people. And, and yeah. And absolutely, yeah. Like, we never learn... I think the biggest problem, in some ways, is that we never learn what he was trying to do. Yeah. Right? It's like... Just that
0: he was doing these things.
1: Right. Like, I was
0: just shooting animals full of radiation for reasons. And, and I mean, even Ted's stuff. Like, we learn what his research was, but not, right. like... Well, why were you doing this? Sure, but...
1: the end goal? But at least... I mean, the end goal was presumably, hey, can these sea animals stand up to this radiation? Because in this movie, the ocean is made of heavy water, and therefore animals are always in a radioactive environment anyway, so let's see what happens if we blast them with a death ray. Um, The thing that's wild is, okay, he's doing it in the lab with the turtle, so he's got a thing in the lab to do this in a controlled environment, So when you, I guess maybe you accidentally, like, knocked off a bunch of rocks and revealed the uranium and shot up a death ray and created a serpent. We don't know. We don't really know how the thing at the bottom of the ocean happened, but it just sort of did. And then rather than being like, oh, shit, what a horrible mistake. I'll cover this with rocks again and kill this monster and then go back to my lab to continue to do these experiments in a controlled environment. You were like, oops. I guess I'll just leave this to murder everyone who comes by yeah. for no reason. So he's inconsistent. He has no motivation. So when there's supposed to be the Sarazawa tragic ending of him sacrificing his life, it's hard to know how you're supposed to feel about it. Because is this a good man who was put in a bad situation, sacrificing his life in order to atone for his mistakes? Or is this an evil, crazy, mad scientist who knows he's about to get caught and is killing himself and destroying the evidence so he doesn't have to go to prison?
0: I know exactly how you're supposed to feel. Mm. Grateful, because it means the movie's over.
1: (laughs) Sure, it's just so frustrating.
0: Yeah. Okay, here are the two positives that I noticed. Okay. The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues... Really helps Roger Corman's Monster from the Ocean Floor Look shine good. even more. Yes, for being interesting, engaging, and a good movie.
1: And that like lead female character who's like gonna just get the to the bottom of this, you know, get no shit matter done. what. It,
0: yeah. Um, if you want to hear more about Monster from the Ocean Floor, it's episode one hundred and seventy B, our very first Roger Corman movie. The second interesting thing, Mm. or positive thing, Mm. I think someone saw this movie, was like, okay, whatever, saw how much money came in from this and Day the World Ended, and was like, huh. And then, when a little movie called Gojira came up Mm. for possible importation into America, Mm -hmm. they were like, huh, people might like this because they liked this. Right, right. So Gojira doesn't come to the U.S. until the following year, 1956. That's right. And there are, as Ben's already kind of pointed out, like some plot similarities of like radioactivity, uh, mutated animal, sorry, mutant mm-hmm. animal, and the scientist dying at the end with secrets. Right, and, and taking his secrets to the grave. Exactly. Um, not so much that like people were like, oh, they liked these plot points, so they are like Godzilla. I just think that there's probably a, a good chance that someone was like, oh, people like. Because we, we, we've seen these radioactivity movies before, like, even mm-hmm. Monster from the Ocean Floor is mm-hmm. about a mutated amoeba. Mm-hmm. So I think people are catching on that, like, oh, th- this kind of story is catching on. And perhaps, even in an indirect way, we can think. The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues, to at least contributing to the decision to bring Gojira to America. Yeah, I've never
1: heard if Phantom was part of that decision. Obviously, the origin of radiation makes sea monster alive and smash things is Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. I mean, that was the movie that inspired Gojira, and it was an American movie, and it was successful in America, so you can kind of view it as a feedback loop. That said, I do think there's something to your theory, because the guy who brought Gojira to America and made Godzilla King of the Monsters out of it is Sam Levine, who owned a bunch of theaters outside of the normal exhibition chains, and was therefore one of the guys showing these movies, and we know that he was showing these movies because he was the guy who watched Monster from the Ocean Floor and said, where the hell is the monster, yeah. So we know he knows these guys. We know he's looking at these movies and selling them, you know. And the fact is, like, from his perspective as an exhibitor, and he became a distributor when he got Godzilla, right? But from his perspective, it's like, okay, I can buy one of these ARC movies and show it and, you know, make a good amount of money. Or I can buy this Toho movie and show it and make a good amount of money What's the difference? Because, you know, the, the only money he's spending is the money to buy the movies. But with Godzilla, he's buying distribution rights as well. So he can sell the movie and play it in his theaters. But also, I think, you know, if I was him, and instead of directly comparing Gojira with Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, I'm directly comparing Gojira and the Phantom from 10,000 Leagues and going, these are going to play to the same people. Which one do I think is going to be the bigger hit? Like if Phantom from 10,000 Leagues can make a million dollars, this other movie that's clearly better, (laughs) because it's a giant, biggest monster you've ever seen. Absolutely. Shoots fire out of his mouth, fucking kills millions of people, and like, holy shit, you know, like, that's, like, I mean, Godzilla's number three on our list. I don't think Phantom from 10,000 Leagues is going to go that high. Yeah. Well, I mean,
0: like, Monster from the Ocean Floor is at 132. It's not going to go above that. Yeah. So I I think,
1: even though I've never heard anything to the effect, I think there is merit to your theory, just because we know those connections between all these people exist. Yeah. There were some things I genuinely liked about this movie that wasn't just how it Related to other films. <laughs> um, sure, tell
0: me about them. Well, I I actually thought
1: the music was pretty neat in some places. I liked some of the decisions made. There's some really cool, weird electronic music in the scenes where he's experimenting on the turtle. I, I thought the music was doing an admirable job of making a movie like this feel like stuff was happening. And, and just musically doing neat stuff. So I liked the music. Um, And I do think there were a couple of good performances in this movie. Kent Taylor isn't really one of them. He's not bad, but he's just, you know, he's... He's there. He's being asked to do the square jaw cardboard hero thing, which he can do just fine. But fuck, it's not hard. Kathy Downs isn't being asked to do much as the other half of the breeding pair. The guy playing King isn't really being served by the script. All the other parts are stereotypes. But the performances I liked were the actress who played Ethel. Yeah. Because you don't get, like, as large a role as this usually for a middle-aged woman in a secretary role, you know? And that gets to do some interesting things and have some character conflict. So that was cool. I also really liked the actor playing Bill, whose character is also just a flat archetype. But the actor did a really good job of basically imitating actors who have played characters like this in bigger movies and (laughs) and coming off like he's on the level of those actors. Like, I don't know. He just really sold the character really well to me. And it was clear that he was like a bargain bin version of, you know, someone else that you would get, but he's doing a good job in it. So I, I liked their, their performances. So that's some stuff that I did. I did like
0: you just like that he looked like jeff daniels
1: yeah he does look like jeff daniels in the newsroom and there's there's there is someone some actor who's played cops in a lot of stuff whose actual performance he really reminded me of like his facial mannerisms and everything and i can't figure out who it is <laughs> but like I know it's not this guy in anything else because i haven't seen any of this guy's other stuff so yeah um those are some nice things about this movie
0: So we've come to the final question.
1: Mmm. Will it blend? Is this horror? (laughs) Yes. What do you... So I think there are some options here. So it could be horror. Other things that you see in this movie are, uh, there's kind of like a murder mystery-ish plot line to it, like a police procedural-ishness to it. You know, it's like if you were watching CSI, except that the murderer had a sea monster. Um, (laughs) You
0: got the Mad Scientist.
1: Right. You got the monster movie. It's definitely a monster movie. It's also definitely science fiction. It's got some thriller elements, given the, like, different people working against each other, all playing each other off one another towards, like, mysterious ends, you know? Mm -hmm. Especially
0: with the spies. Yeah.
1: It's... Yeah. So it's also kind of a spy movie. I do think the inconsistency with Professor King, where he seems like two personalities is probably because the movie thinks, seems to think, like it's some kind of mystery where the audience doesn't know who's responsible for all the murders and the two suspects are George or the Professor, except that it's obvious who's responsible for the monster and it's obvious who's responsible for the murders. But anyways, I think that's why Professor King acts evil sometimes, is so that you can be like, oh, is he the one who killed Ethel? Regardless, that gives it kind of a thriller vibe. So there's other things this movie can be. Is it horror? What do you think?
0: I don't think so. Because what are we supposed to be scared of? Like, the monster only stays by the light. (laughs) And even then, if you get at a dodge fast enough, it's not going to go after you.
1: Yeah, it's like, imagine if there was a wacky, waving, inflatable, arm flailing tube man at the bottom of the ocean. If it touches you, you die.
0: So just stay out of reach.
1: Yeah. I do think we're supposed to be scared of the monster, but you are right that the monster is not scary. It's also so tacked on. It's here because fucking
0: they wanted a monster. Cause,
1: yeah, cuz they were like, "Hey, we can't we can't not have a monster. We've learned this lesson." But like the thing that's killing everyone is the death ray. The monster's yes. just there. So yeah, so there are the scenes where people are swimming around with scuba gear And the monster's nearby, and ooh, will it get them? Pretty much all of those scenes are unnecessary to the plot. Like, you could cut mostly all of them and and lose nothing. And those are the only scenes that have scary stuff, right? Everything outside of the water is is, um, thriller stuff,
0: I guess. Yeah, and I feel like if this movie was from Ethel's point of view, Mm. it would definitely be a horror movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Up until she dies, I guess, because then it would be over. Um, Very Kafka. <laughs> but yeah, because we are with Ted and Grant, I guess, it's more of a, a mystery. But we know what the fucking answer is. Even he knows what the answer yes. is.
1: Yes, yes. He has showed up just to confirm if his suspicions are right. And turns out
0: they are right. T- he,
1: he confirms it immediately and then just kind of hangs around to see what will happen next until a boat blows up. Yeah, Um, yeah. I think you're right. I think the movie started out, from a certain point of view, so strong. Because it starts with the fisherman getting killed. Yeah. And, like, that's even before the credits, right? Like, this guy's on a boat. It's peaceful. He gets pulled underwater by this monster and drowns. And then the title comes up. And it's like, oh, damn. Like, that's a bold way to start your movie. And then, like...
0: Nothing happens.
1: Nothing happens until a boat blows up.
0: Yeah, I I did pick out a range if we were to rank it. So did I. But the thing that really hammered home that this was not horror was even in this range I was like, This doesn't feel right. No place on the list felt right. Mm. And if it was horror, it there would be a feeling.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's enough of a monster movie that I was on the fence about it being horror.
0: And it's definitely sci-fi, as you yes. said.
1: Like, so I, I, I was coming into this discussion, like, knowing that this was going to come up, but kind of being... Coy. Being able to be swayed either way. Uh. Like, keeping my mind open so that if you came in and you were like, this is definitely horror, I wouldn't really have fought you on it. And similarly, I'm not really going to fight you on it. it's not horror either, because I was just on the fence. I will say, just for the record, my range was 153 to 170. Oh, mine was 160 to 170. All right, cool. So, you know, we could have found some some common ground there. Yeah. Um, and there is 175 movies on the list, just for the context of how low that is.
0: Yes. Um, but I,
1: I think you're right. I think, unfortunately, neither half of this horror double bill is horror.
0: Yeah, both are definitely sci-fi. And... I think it's interesting to point this out because sci-fi wasn't really much of a genre before the 50s. And you can trace its origin to Frankenstein. Yes. An early horror movie. Right. Exactly. So you really are seeing the two paths diverged in wood. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, I think think the thing is, is before, you know, the 1950s, you can count the number of, like, A sci-fi movies on, like, one hand, maybe even half a hand. Like, you have Metropolis in the 20s, and there's a couple of others in the silent era. But in the 30s and 40s, sci-fi was, like, 100% just a thing for movie serials. Like, it was Flash Gordon, which is, like, a comic book adaptation, right? Nowadays, we wouldn't call really Flash Gordon sci-fi anymore. Like, it's space opera, because it's just pulpy adventure.
0: Yeah. Right? Or space fantasy.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. Then you've got into the fifties. What you start getting is more influence of serious science fiction, because yeah.
0: Destination Moon, right? Forbidden Planet, yes. Even a th- the Thing from Another World,
1: the Thing from Another World, War of the Worlds, This Island Earth, even which isn't a good movie, but like is taking it sci-fi seriously. Yeah, you know, and that's really coming out of the popularity and influence of both. The fact that sci-fi literature was getting better, you know, the 40s sees the rise of like Asimov and Campbell and all these influential big names. And then the fact that in the 50s, you know, the U.S. was really embracing science and technology in a huge way. And there was more curiosity about space and all of these things. But what ties sci-fi to horror is the monster. Yeah. That you have monsters in both. And basically it's like... How scary and threatening is the monster? How much of an afterthought is the monster to the movie is what's answering, like, is this horror or is this sci-fi in a lot of ways, right?
0: Yeah, I think, like, that's a great metric. Because if you think about the cell in Earth, like, that's the one with the Metaluna Mutant, That's right, yeah. Like, which really does feel like an afterthought. Oh, yeah. And it's so disappointing as a result. yeah. Versus, like, even, like, Forbidden Planet, where it's not so much that the monster, like, the id mm-hmm. monster, is an afterthought, but it's not what the movie's really concerned about. The movie's concerned about the mystery of what the scientist is doing. Right.
1: I will say that the monster from the id is way scarier than yes. some, like, legit horror monsters we've seen.
0: Absolutely. But, but that's not its main concern.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's interesting to identify this period as this time when these two genres really overlap heavily because I think what we're seeing in a lot of ways in this decade, and you can even attach this to Diabolique and, and Night of the Hunter is horror searching for an identity because somebody, you know, it, it was clearly realized that like the universal Gothic horror shit had, done its course and run out of steam and was not the zeitgeist of the 50s. And so you're trying to figure out, well, what is horror then? Is it, do I take a Hitchcock thriller and just make it way more disturbing? Is that what horror is? Do I take like a fairy tale, which are usually always disturbing anyways, and then again, like just up the scary factor and that's horror? Or do I look at, you know, the fact that sci-fi is the big zeitgeist genre and try to crossbreed and figure out if that's horror. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I think horror as a genre is playing second fiddle to science fiction right
0: now. Absolutely. Like we are now officially into the second half of the 1950s.
1: Yes. And sci-fi is like clearly the new dominant B movie genre. Um, Because of not only that zeitgeist stuff, but the fact that we've seen that westerns, which used to be the big, the biggest B movie genre, have moved on to TV.
0: Yeah, they're on the little screen.
1: Yeah, and you can do crime movies on TV too. Yeah.
0: Whereas um, science fiction is going to bring people to the theaters or the drive-thrus because Mm -hmm. you want to see it on the big screen, or Mm -hmm. you want to get away from your parents to make out. Yeah. And horror has a place there. It's not really going to do well on TV. Because people aren't really experimenting yet with TV. Well, and, and like,
1: you know, the the content laws on TV are even stricter than the the Hays Code stuff, right? Yeah,
0: so the films, that's really where horror can be. But if you have a choice of, like, okay, I'm a producer. My main concern is, is this going to make money? There Mm -hmm. is an artistic level intent at a producer level. Yes. But, like, you're still your goal is still to make money.
1: You want to make a good movie because presumably good movies make money.
0: I'm going to make sci-fi then. Yeah. Because that's what's hot right now. Yeah. I mean, you see it with Roger Corman, right? Yeah. Like, he did horror, was great at it, but he saw that his horror and the science fiction elements of his horror were what's hot right now. So let's, let's go to there.
1: Yeah, And so it's, it's definitely creating a lot of these edge cases where you look these movies up And people have a hard time classifying them. Because it's like, well, there's a monster in here, and there's a girl who screams, and people are dying, so is this horror. And I can understand why these movies fall on, like, both sides of the fence a lot of times. And I think we're doing the world a valuable service (laughs) by, you know, actually watching them. Sure. So that, you know, then... People who listen to our show can go to the Wikipedia pages and take the word horror out of them and things like that. I thought that
0: was your job. (laughs) Well, so we're not ranking this, but if you do want to see the list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can see where the other movies we've mentioned today were ranked, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, or I guess non-ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can yell at us on Twitter at underscore screamscene.
1: Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Using our RSS feed, you can subscribe to us through most podcasting apps. If you enjoy the show, leave us a rating or review uh, where you can. Um, That really helps us out by fueling algorithms to suggest the show to more listeners. If you want to help us find new listeners, you can just do it directly by talking to people. Tell your friends about us. Tell social media about us. uh, Write a Medium post. I don't know. (laughs) And if you really enjoy the show and you have the means... You can help support us financially as well uh, by heading over to patreoncom podcast, where you can sign up to be a patron at the one dollar, five dollar, or ten dollar levels. Uh, five and ten dollar patrons get special bonus content, and we've been doing Patreon for one hundred and forty-six weeks. Right, so that makes it four weeks away to our 150th week on Patreon. And our Patreon goal right now is to hit $150, at which point we are going to start doing a bonus fifth episode every month looking at horror-adjacent movies. So watching stuff like The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms or This Island Earth, for instance. Stuff that is related to horror but is not strictly horror. So what we're saying is we would like to hit 150 by 150.
0: So with four weeks to go, uh, we are just30 dollars away from reaching that goal. So if you'd like to support us and help us to get there and get a bonus episode in four weeks mm-hmm. on a horror adjacent movie, head over to patreoncom screamscenepodcast and sign up to become a patron of the night. What are we watching next week, Ben?
1: Okay, so I do have some very good news. We're watching a real movie.
0: Oh, good. Okay. Yeah,
1: um, that is still science fiction, but I can guarantee you I am on much firmer ground bringing it into our horror movie podcast. Okay. Um, It is a major classic. It's probably going to be a big episode. It's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh,
0: shit. Yeah.
1: The first one. Yeah,
0: because the second one's in like the 70s? Yeah,
1: there are four movie versions of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. There's Invasion of the Body Snatchers from the 50s, Invasion of the Body Snatchers from the 70s, Body Snatchers from the 90s, and Invasion from the 2000s.
0: Cool. I am excited for this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So am I. So if you want to hear an episode about a classic of 1950s paranoia join us next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!